So let's start with Luke 5, 8. Let me pray, actually, uh, over our time, and then we'll dive in, if, if that's okay. Father, I pray for us in this room. I pray for this, this your church, Antioch in Bend, Oregon, on this particular day, the people that are sitting here, even the people that weren't able to make it this morning, we pray that we would over and over and over again be turned back to you, that we would not lose hope, that our love for you would not grow cold, that we would not slowly be deceived into thinking that there are other things out there that ultimately, in the end, are going to work better than, than if we walked in faith and by obedience. And so this time that we dedicate to you, I pray that you would use it somehow in power, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that somehow you would do a work on our hearts that only you could do, that I can't do, that words can't do, that reading verses can't do, but only through the power of your Holy Spirit can happen. Let us be changed um, this morning, Father, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so Luke... Luke 5.8. This is the beginning of calling the disciples. It's one of these stories that we see. And Jesus rolls up onto these guys that are fishermen. And um, and he says to Simon Peter after he gets in his boat, because uh, he pushes out to sea a little bit to gain a little separation from the crowd, Uh, He says, let's go catch some fish. Um, And he says, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And in chapter 5, verse 5 of Luke, it says this, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Um, It's an interesting thing. I've, I've been on the Sea of Galilee. They still will, will show you the kind of nets that they used. But basically, it's, it's weighted, and when you, um, when you pull it up, it closes the top. So it goes out, spreads out, sinks down, and then when you pull it, it folds in and comes up. And so whatever was in the net, uh, in that place, uh, you'll kind of scoop them up. You know, I mean, it's just basically throwing it out and then letting down the nets. And then when you pull, it kind of cinches up the sack. Just think of like Santa Claus's bag with a cinch. Um, and if you've been doing that all night, working hard all night as a fisherman, you don't like a prophet that goes around uh, preaching, telling you how to go out and catch fish. See a galley like any other sea, there's places to catch, places not to catch, and oftentimes it's more by the edges that you're going to catch the fish, not way out in deep water. And, and if you have been doing this and you didn't catch it during the time of day when you're most likely to catch the fish because they're at the certain depth that you would catch them and someone says, go do it in a way that's not how you would do it normally after you've already failed at it, it's a bit of an annoyance, right? Um, we all know this. If you walk up to someone and you, you begin telling them their craft, I had a surgery once it goes down as like the greatest memory of me being way too verbal of an extrovert. But they, uh, they put me most of the way under. And then they had a mirror so I could watch. And it was loopy, whatever the drug was. But I was still, I was still conscious, but just out of my mind. And I was kind of watching. And then I, 
I had a part of me that was aware of the other part of me that was telling the doctor he was doing it wrong. And the part of me that was aware of the other part of me that was talking began to realize that I should probably tell that part of me to, to just shut up and, and wait and see. You know what I mean? Like maybe you should just ride this one out. And, and, and it was just an interesting thing. But it's like you don't tell people how to do their craft. And so Peter's like, whatever, I got nothing else going. And so he goes out. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so, so they signaled their partners in another boat to come out and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink, which is crazy. If you go by the, the shores of Galilee, they have a boat from this time period that they had found in mud, like the, the remains of a boat. And archaeologists came and dug it up, and it's in this little museum. And to picture a boat like that being ready to sink because of so, uh, so many fish. Two boats like that is a crazy thing. So this is a miracle. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For, for he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had seen. So what he realized was that Jesus, to, to have that much power over nature, was was an authority figure, was, was the son of God, was a person of God. Whatever his knowledge was at that point in time, he realized that this was not normal life, that this was something radically spiritual going on. And he said, I don't deserve this. My self-awareness is that, that at this point in time, I should shut up, I should bow the knee and say, I don't deserve this. You should probably go away from me. I'm rugged. Uh, I might use some cuss words here and there. My motives might not always be pure. I might not always treat the other fishermen well. I, I'm, this, I'm a sinful man. I'm a man who sins. And that's his first response. And when you, when you, when you catch a glimpse of, of the fact that, that God exists or that Jesus is the Son of God or that there is power in this world above just the social interactions we have and that we're, we're, we're used to, you realize that all of the social interactions and everything else is, is just kind of a diversion or a game or something else, but there's a higher level. When there's a higher level, this goes down in terms of importance and you step back and say, I submit, I'm humbled um, to that. This is a pattern we see all throughout scripture. So if you turn to Isaiah, Let's look at the prophet Isaiah in a similar encounter. Isaiah chapter 6, which is after uh, the book of Proverbs, after Ecclesiastes, it's the first of the major prophets. Uh, the books kind of go in order of size. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, and this is what we read. I'll begin in verse 1. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. In other words, I had a vision of God, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were... Ser I mean, by the way, we see these kinds of visions even today. Like you watch uh, royal marriages or coronations of kings that they still have in Europe or the Middle East or whatnot, and there will be these long trains that go with these gowns, and you're like... That's a whole lot of fabric and a whole lot of work. So that person must be important because only somebody important 
would be able to handle all of that train going on from that garment. The rest of us are a bit more practical. You know what I'm talking about? Like this is still the same idea that, that, that the train of his robe filled the temple. That it just carried his presence all throughout that and showed that he set apart. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Have you ever heard the phrase, if you grew up in a Baptist church or other, thrice, a thrice holy God? Have you ever heard that phrase? A three times holy God. Because we see it in scripture, this idea of the perfect number, the Trinity, three, three times. It's kind of that perfect number of completeness. And holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And verse five, woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In other words, I'm not fit for this. I don't belong here. I'm not the right kind of person. I'm, these, these creatures flying behind the throne of God cover their eyes and their feet because God is holy and pure. I mean, this is like at the core of everything and I can't be here. I can't see this. This is a category fallacy. It doesn't work. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. How do we get to come into the presence of God? How, how do we actually find ourselves worthy to come into the presence of God and to find fellowship and communion? Um, it's always because of grace. It's always a work initiated by God. Today, if you're able to find fellowship with God, it's because of a work initiated by God, because of grace that comes through Christ, that you might be holy as he is holy and find yourself in the presence of God, therefore then fit to be commissioned in the service of God. It's always a work of God. And when we start with Christianity or Christ or religion as let me try to work this for myself, we start in the wrong place. We start with a reality of the bigness of God that makes all of our earthly level things pale in comparison to the fact that God exists and there is power, that everything is spiritual. We start there, we're undone and made clean that we can then have fellowship. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. There's always something fascinating when God finds people who are willing to be used in his service for his kingdom purposes, that there's always a go and there's always a tell. It's, it's that way today. When we find ourselves in the presence of God, we're undone 
And then when we're undone, we find ourselves kneeling and saying, get away from me, Lord. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I sin. I live with people who sin. I don't deserve this. I don't even know how to handle this. This is in some ways awkward. And then God bridges the gap. Christ bridges the gap, lifts us to our feet. And, and right after Peter fell on his knees, Jesus called him to discipleship. Right after Isaiah fell on his knees, God called him to discipleship commissions them to follow and to go and to tell. Jesus in Luke chapter 5 says, You've fished for fish, and I've shown you that I know better than you how to fish for fish. Now I'm going to teach you to go and do something higher. I'm going to teach you to go fish for men. And he takes Peter and he commissions him. So the first thing here is this. We have to be undone. The first movement of a movement towards God is a movement where we're undone with all of our packaging, all of our familiarity, all of our normal life, all of our sense of control and what we think and what we see and what we desire for our life as our will would have it. All of the cultural norms, all of the ways we've been socialized, the way we've patterned ourselves to talk, all of that sin all of that impurity, all of that is a certain kind of way that fits here but doesn't fit when we're sitting at the throne of God, that has to be undone. We have to recognize that we want that to be undone. The, the idea in the New Testament was always repent and be baptized. And the word repent here just simply means turn. You're walking a certain way, turn from that, then be baptized, which is a commissioning. It's a ceremony. It's, it's a baptism. We still use the word that way, don't we? It's a commissioning. It's a, a blessing. It's a, a marking of you to then go and be, go and tell, go and do. But you turn and be baptized and walk with a different agenda, a different calling, a different understanding of how everything is spiritual somehow, some way, as we walk by faith. But did you pick up on that word? Repentance means what? Turn. Very practically speaking, we are supposed to turn to God. Just like, I mean, just like we would turn to yoga or the gym or work or diversions or medication or something else to deal with the issue, the brokenness that we know exists in our heart. Just like we would turn to that. We're supposed to say, I'm choosing now to turn and to go a different way, to, to completely become a citizen of a different kind of kingdom that's going to socialize me and bring me into a different kind of culture. I'm going to be baptized into the name of Jesus. Do you see how that works? It's incredibly practical. But I think sometimes in church, you listen to, to me or guys like me that love ideas and we make it all theoretical and idealistic and, we, and we, I kind of somehow miss boiling it, boiling it down to the, the utter practicality of in your week, today, this month, this year, on your calendar, with your money and your relationships, have you turned to Christ? Is, is this value that you say you have or you want reflected in the list of things that you're actually prioritizing? It's that practical. It's that basic. So we start by being undone. 
Interesting thing with Peter here. So Peter, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Interesting thing with Peter, Peter kind of gets it. So I, I see this working in my life. There's that moment where you first meet Jesus and it's this big moment of being undone and a big moment of turning and then you kind of begin to get smart like you're, you're Christian and you know the answers to questions when you're uh, in Sunday school or around a group of Christians and you kind of you have the drill. Does that make sense? You kind of get it. And so Jesus asked this question, very familiar passage, but then there's a less familiar follow-up to it. And it says this, uh, Jesus goes, who do people say I am? So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Asked Jesus, who do you say that I am? By the way, all those other people are still on this level, Right? It's, it's, it's still dealing at this level, making sense of everything. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He takes it to that different level. Like you come with power. You're the son of God, the creator who came into his creation. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my, by my father in heaven, the Father who always initiates. Like I said, it, it always begins with the work of God. And I tell you that you are Peter, Cephas. Uh, he renames him. And on this rock, I will build my church. So he calls him rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does it mean when you give your kids the keys? to the car or the vacation home at the beach. What, what does it mean when you give your kids the keys? Anybody? Yeah, here you go. I trust you now with my kingdom to go and, and act in my kingdom according to the wishes I would have as the king of my kingdom. I remind my daughters that I'm the king of my kingdom all the time, and that I have a sovereign will over, I'm just, I'm not actually kidding. Um, the, but when you give them the keys, you're saying, go as an ambassador, uh, I give you the opportunity and the responsibility and the stewardship to move in my kingdom, doing the will that I have for my kingdom. You have the power, you have the authority to open the doors and to close the doors. You're the one responsible. Not your friend who goes to the beach house with you, but you. Not the other kid that climbed in the car, but you. I gave you the keys. Does that make sense? So Peter, you get this to such a high degree, so now I'm giving you the keys so that you can do my will. Do you see that? Now listen to what comes next. It's crazy, right? So verse 21, chapter 16, verse 21. Then we see that Jesus continues um, and he began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Like Peter's being the ultimate guy. Like, no, 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 no. We can, uh, 
we, we can write a different script here. We can do a different plan. Let's think about this. We can be victorious. Um, but he's, he's doing the guy thing, takes him to the side and says, uh, me and you, Jesus, me and you. I got the right answer. Remember that? I got the right answer. You gave me the keys. We're buds. Me and you. Me and you, Jesus. Have you ever done that with Jesus? Me and you? Which really usually means um, me. Jesus, me. Can't you see that that's a good idea, Jesus, about me? <laughs> me and you, Jesus, thinking usually is about my idea, my will for his kingdom. My will for his kingdom. It's what it meant when Peter did it. So this is what Jesus says, verse 23, chapter 16 of Matthew. Jesus turned to Peter and says this, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. How quickly, Peter, you took your eyes off of the heavenly kingdom, the spiritual side of things, the fact that your citizenship is there and you're trying to work this thing out according to the rules of this culture, this world, this kingdom, this Jewish citizenship that you have, the way you've grown up and been socialized to think that everything should work out. You, you, you might not have the American dream, Peter, but you've got the Jewish dream. Every culture, every people always has a, a narrative, don't they? That they all rally around that they all drive towards and aspire to. There was a Jewish dream, just like there's an American dream, the way they all wanted things to go. You're trying to make it about the Jewish dream, about your dream, and you don't have in mind the things of God. Who was the other person that tried to do this to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry? Tested Jesus. If you really are the son of God, yeah, thank you. The other person that did this to Jesus, it says, if you really have power, throw yourself down from this tower. If you really are the person in all that authority, just claim all, all the nations. Bow your knee to me, and I'll, I'll just give you all the earthly tribes. Now, it would go, go a lot easier for you. I'll give you all the money. I'll give you all the stuff. I'll give you all the friends. I'll give you all the influence. I'll give you all the glory. Won't that be great? You can just go into cruise control. Life will be grand. I'll give you all that. Just, just bow the knee to me. Make it about me. Make it about that stuff, and, and we'll work this arrangement. So it's, it's no coincidence that Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's Satan's narrative. That's Satan's lie. That's his story. That's his game. Peter, don't you see it's not about this. You need to to set your mind on things above. Jesus says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It's really interesting how we try to co-opt the power when we see that there's power. When we realize that God exists, when we realize that God has power, we, we tend to try to co-opt that power for our own story, our own agenda. I wrote these phrases down um, we end up sacrificing character for comfort. We end up sacrificing principle with pleasure. We end up sacrificing the Eucharist for experience. We don't want the tough things. Deep down, I don't want the toughest things. I don't want the cross. 
I'd rather have an experience of being spiritual or religious, one that feels good in my belly, makes me feel good about myself, makes me feel like I'm progressing in life towards Ken's American dream, towards the narrative I would have. We always try and co-opt the power or the reality of God's kingdom for our own purpose. That's human nature. That's human nature. It's interesting because in America, we, I've, I've said this before, but you can read a great book on this called The American Dream by uh, Andrew Del Banco. But he's a sociologist and a historian, one of my favorite historians. Fascinating insight. But he talks about America and what unifies America. There's always something that unifies people because we're social, right? There's always something we submit to um, because we're social beings, and it used to be in America that what unified America, even if you were a nominal uh, religious person, was this idea of God, a transcendent God, a lawgiver God, a creator God. But that used to be, way back in America, the idea that united most of uh, our country. And there's different periods when that was the unifying thing. Do you know that uh, the dollar bill didn't get uh, in God we trust until 1953? It was Eisenhower's era. It's Eisenhower's era. Because post-World War II, there's this resurgence of spirituality. It was 1953 when they put In God We Trust on our paper bills. Um, it's crazy. So there's different times when that has been a unifying thing in society. Um, but if you go way back, that was the dominant one. And Andrew Del Banco then moves it forward and says, uh, it got replaced um, in the disillusionment with God after the Civil War with death, with the beginning of of evolutionary thinking that really wreaked havoc in American churches in the 1880s and 1890s. I mean, it really presented this huge challenge to faith that by the time you get to Roosevelt and then on into the two world wars, that you had this nationalism that really came in. And we really united underneath the flag. Even people that came and were immigrants really wanted to be first and foremost Americans. Everybody kind of came underneath that flag. There's this kind of sense of unity in this nationalism we had. And that carried us for a very long time. And then about the 70s, this disillusionment with America because of uh, Watergate. How do we even trust our elected officials in the Vietnam War and, and kind of everything else that was happening there and this disillusionment crept in. And he said, just like the nation had to fill the void for when God was no longer the thing that everyone could unify around, something else had to had to fill the void when nation went away as the sovereign thing and what filled the void from the 70s on and he he argues it very eloquently um, what filled the void was that in our culture we we've made the self sovereign we've made me sovereign I sovereign that's I was born in 72 I know that to be true because I've grown up in, in that culture, I find, I find that it's, it's tattooed deep into different fibers of my being. And it's hard, it's hard to strip out the sense that I'm always going to look out for number one. That at the end of the day, we think individually first. And that's why it's an interesting thing when we go do justice as Americans is we'll come into communities that have a strong family ethic. Latino communities that have a strong family ethic. Or you go to Africa, they have a strong tribal identity. And there's something bigger than self. Do you see that? And, and we come in 
And, and they look at us as individuals and they go, you know, we have something we could teach you. There's, there's something we could teach you. There's something you could learn from us and we don't always see that. But there's this interesting thing that goes on with self that we have um, and I wanna show how it gets in the way of serving God. That if, we're, if, if self is sovereign, it, it's the thing that has to die if we're gonna truly serve God. So we have to start with, whoa, I'm undone, I'm, I'm unclean, I need this grace, God's willing to take me in, but that always is followed. God bringing us in is always followed with a commissioning of now you're one of my people, you're a part of my family, I've adopted you, you're a part of the body of Christ, I'm gonna gift you, you're gonna be commissioned to be a different kind of person. Those two things always go together, the undoneness, the grace, but then the commissioning. So let's look at the early church. Acts 1.8. It's the opposite of co-oping the power and the reality of God's kingdom for our own purpose. But Acts 1.8, it's Jesus commissioning his followers. He says this. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Well, let's just begin at verse 7. So Acts chapter 1, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority for when he's going to come back, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you hear that? You will be. I mean, it's a statement of fact. It's a statement of identity. It's not, would you be? It's, you will be. Statement of fact, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, it's going to start here at home and then it's going to go to your backyard to Judea, but the backyard that you have an affinity with, like the people that are like you, and then it's going to go to Samaria, backyard, but people that you don't really have an affinity with, and then it's going to go to the ends of the earth, which means the rest, all of it matters. Not just one part, but all of it matters. There's a line that cuts through all of society in this world that matters to God. And we're gonna move outward, the disciples, the people of God, into ever-increasing spheres of influence and be the witnesses of Jesus. So then we see in chapter two that this is happening, that they're becoming this light, this city on a hill. It says at the end of chapter two of Acts, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's beginning. Now, when you're in college, you read this and you're like, that's the manifesto for Christian community. Let's all, let's all go form a commune and let's do this um, because I don't see it in any churches that, that are out there, but obviously this is what it's supposed to be. So we kind of idealistically go form that up, but we don't keep reading, but we're gonna do that. So let's keep reading Acts 6.1. Acts 6.1. So this same church, as, as the story continues, looks this way. And in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so as church growth is happening, 
the Grecian Jews that spoke Greek, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, the Jews from Jerusalem, Judea, that spoke uh, Aramaic probably, uh, the Hebraic Jews, because their widows, the Greek widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What's going on? You've got widows. Widows are supposed to be cared for. And what's happening is it's we're being witnesses to Jerusalem in Judea. Full stop. Our agenda for our tribe, our family, but not fully the kingdom agenda for God's family. Not Samaria, not the ends of the earth. We're going to give food to Jerusalem, Judean uh, widows, but not the Greek widows. When Jesus came in and overturned the, the money tables, interesting thing was where those money tables were set up was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the temple that was reserved for the Gentiles to be able to come and get close to the God of Israel. And the Israelites were using it to serve their economic agenda and power agenda. Again, drawing a divide and saying, we're going to care about our own. We're not going to care about the other. Fascinating thing. Why is this really a big deal? I've never really heard this taught, and I was thinking about it um, the last couple days. Isaiah 1.17. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But Isaiah is the big judgment um, book of why God is sending out the Israelites into captivity, why he's punishing them, the exile. Why is God punishing the Israelites? Here's why. Uh, Acts or Isaiah 1:17. Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, uh, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In other words, you haven't been doing this, and so judgment is coming. And I'm telling you, please start learning to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed defend the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. You're not doing justice well for all the people, the vulnerable people in society, and so you're going to get sent into exile, you Israelites. Isaiah uh, chapter 10, more of the same. But it's woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. In other words, the ones dispensing the money to the widows were probably Greek speak, or I'm sorry, uh, Jewish believers because that's their, their home city and their homeland and these foreigners that are in their presence are being excluded. The ones in power are excluding the ones without power because they're the other the early church, the Acts 2 church, that wonderful church that all the 20-somethings that I used to know back in the 90s were going and, and starting living communities around to try and model that same church was doing the perennial sin that Israel had always done, which was play out their own narrative and not realize that you're gonna be witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, that, that this is now keys to the kingdom where everyone, everyone has a place to stand. It's crazy. We took the name Antioch because Antioch turned to Acts chapter 10. It's a tough name to live into. Uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 11. But Acts chapter 11, we see in verse 19, 
this. So God was frustrated with how Jerusalem was just always thinking about itself. You know, there's so many issues in our own city that we need to fix these before we ever do anything else. Sounds very logical, doesn't it? Are we ever going to fix the issues? Is there ever going to be a time when we're done fixing all the issues to where now we can go? Jesus, let me go and, and bury my father. Let me go put my affairs in order, then I'll come follow you. And Jesus is like, when is that ever going to happen? If we are only concerned with our own lives, getting our own finances in order, our own retirement in order, our own relationships or power in order, before we say, now I'm ready, God, will we ever be ready? And so the Jerusalem church got into that dysfunction. And so God sent persecution. That's one of the craziest things about the book of Acts is how God is still sending discipline after Jesus died for our sins, still sending discipline to goad his people to do his work. Some people are going to die so that other people will actually do the work that God has for us. What would that look like in our context? Some of us, if we don't get it right, are going to be disciplined and wrecked so that others might come to understand that we need to take the godly narrative and repattern our lives with the values we wish we had. That's, that's crazy, isn't it? That's when we realize it's about God's will for his kingdom. It's not about our will. It's hard to understand that any of us would suffer if we think that God and his power exist to serve our will first and foremost. If when we pray we think we're going to Santa Claus, it's really hard to ever understand, uh, understand discipline or persecution or suffering. When we understand that God's got a bigger agenda, it's scary because he will move us that way. So God brings persecution and he forces them out. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and it says this. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message of Christ only to Jews. Why did they do that? I think, it's, I think it's plain and simple. Comfort. If you're a Jewish person and you've been scattered out of Jerusalem and you're on the road, who are the people that you, you, you have an affinity with that you can speak their language? You know how to have that conversation. It's comfortable. And so they, they were only telling the message to the Jews. There we go again. Lowering God's vision for his kingdom into something that fits what I'm comfortable with. And then it says this. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, people that have a Greek influence, people that aren't as close to maybe the center, went to Antioch and they began speaking to Greeks also. The outsiders sometimes know how to do the work of Jesus better than the insiders do. And they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Where did we see that before? We saw it with Jerusalem. God's hand was with Jerusalem, and they grew. Then God's hand was against Jerusalem, and they were scattered. And then some began to take the message 
out to the other working and, and being commissioned to be witnesses and God's hand was with them. So this idea of being the change in the world, I think is really more about being changed ourselves. I think it's about being undone in the first place. It's about realizing that every now and then Jesus is going to look us in the eye and awkwardly, Jesus always calls the awkwardness to the surface. And he's going to look us in the eyes and say, get behind me, you who, who don't have in mind the things of God. And it's like, ouch, Th that doesn't feel comfortable. Remember, I'm on your team. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. I get that you're, that you're Jesus. Like I get, so, so talk to me a little nicer. Like, don't, that's awkward. Jesus is like, it's awkward, but this conversation is going to accomplish what it's meant to do. We're going to deal with this business right now. If you ask my daughters, when things go wrong, it gets awkward really quick. There's a reason for that. Because 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, an hour later, it's done. And we move forward reflecting, hopefully, the values that we think we have. All right, um, let's fast forward here and then wrap this up. I used to say, give your life away a lot. And I realized that it was really hard for some people. Like, how, how do I do that? What does that mean? I don't know that I feel like I have anything to give. There's a weird tension in that. And two things that I don't know that I said clearly enough. One, the awkwardness or the tension is what I was after. Because tension spiritually means that we usually go to God and try to talk to him. Just look at the Psalms. Almost every one of those Psalms was written out of a lot of tension and anxiety, right? I, I, it's a good thing when the narrative here is disruptive enough or we're confused enough that we have to go, God, I, I don't understand how your will would work out in my life or, or in, in my community. Like, I'm a bit lost. Like, that's actually a big part of what I try to go for is create the tension so that we might sit in that tension and people would have a reason for praying, okay? The second thing is this. We assume that we're all in the position to give. Paternalism is this thing that we do when we, again, when we do justice, we always come in as the Americans thinking that other people need us to care for them, almost as if they're little children, that they're not equals with us. We, we come in on a different power structure, and it's actually offensive in the long run. We can come in and be equals with the people that we're trying to love the way we would want people to treat us if we were in need physical needs, poverty, financial need, etc. right? But Americans, we tend to come in on this higher order. It's, it's a long history of colonialism and a, a lot of other words that would trip you up if I said them right now, but we have ingrained in us this implicit sense of, of power difference, okay? And it's really hard because this, only, uh, this not only affects negatively the people we try to serve, but here's how it neg uh, negatively affects you or us. When I say give your life away, which position do you put yourself in? Like immediately. This, this shows the implicit bias, by the way, doesn't it? We put ourselves in the position of the giver, don't we? To go do justice and help the African or help the whoever. We, when I'm saying give your life away, we always put our position in the giver spot. But some of you are actually the ones that need to, to receive. And I don't know that I've done a good enough job of, of 
recognizing and calling that to the surface. When I was in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, it was fascinating studying the history for me because we had a Cambodian family live with me when I was a little kid, so it had this personal connection for me. And one of the crazy things that happened in that genocide was at the beginning of it, they drove 25% of the whole country was killed in a matter of like four years. But at the beginning of it, they drove two million people out of the capital city of Phnom Penh because they were trying to do this radical form of agrarian, agrarian socialism and push people out into the country to farm. And they destroyed the banks, monetary system. I mean, they were taking, the, taking it back to the Stone Ages. And literally boys with guns and, and all these people as part of the Khmer Rouge at gunpoint were chasing everybody out of the city and they emptied the hospitals even. And so there are stories when you talk to people that were old enough to remember it, they're like, it was the craziest thing to see people with a stick and broken legs trying to walk down the street with kids with guns, you know, pushing them forward. People in wheelchairs as somebody's walking with their uh, IV bag, their bag of fluids. And they emptied the countryside that way. And one of the things they told them to, to kind of make it work was the Americans are going to bomb. You'll be back in a weekend. Uh, we got to empty it out. The Americans are going to bomb us. But that's kind of how they crowd controlled it. Um, but I think sometimes I fall victim to this. Pastors fall victim to this. Uh, people shouldn't have to walk on broken legs. And if I'm ever the person that's pushing somebody forward, trying to force you to walk on a broken leg, then I'm missing the shepherdly spirit of Christ that says, that, that we're here to bandage up wounds first and foremost too. And that weird paternalism thing I think makes it hard and makes you feel guilty because you're like, I don't have any money. My family's wrecked. My kids are a mess. I don't know how to give right now. And it's okay to flip it around and say, God takes account of that in his kingdom that every once in a while we're the ones that need to receive but if we don't recognize that we need to receive, we're never gonna ask anyone else to help us. We're never gonna raise our hand. We're never gonna go to our church body and say, we need people to come around us right now. We need counsel, we need help, we need prayer. And so getting out of self allows us to also take on the narrative of community. That means when we're alone, we don't drown alone. When we feel alone and needy, we're carried by those that love us, by those that God puts around us that we might be able to go forward. So give your life away is a principle ultimately when we have the keys or the excess to live out God's calling for his kingdom. But that includes helping each other and encouraging each other once uh, daily as we get the opportunity. Um, we'll, save, we'll save the rest for next week, but let me close us in prayer. Again, not trying to relieve the tension, but just saying, God, as we come to realize that you're there, maybe we would turn fully and pattern our lives practically to live those, those values that we wish we had in our life. Father, again, I commit it back to you. I feel weak um, and really unable to accomplish spiritual growth. It's not my job. But hopefully in, in this place, you're able to grow us spiritually, that you're able to break us as we need to be broken, teach us as we need to be taught, and encourage us as we need to be encouraged. You love us. We know you love us. You love us even in your discipline of us. If there's one thing that we need to grab hold of this morning, Father, it's your love for us, that we are, are loved and, and that our lives matter.
And I pray that. I pray that for my kids, that they know you love them. I pray that for my friends and their kids, that they know that you love them. For older people in this congregation, that they know that you love them and have not forsaken or forgotten them. For younger people that are trying to figure out how to navigate life, that they know that you love them and that you have a plan for them and that you will commission them and that, that you want them to be a part of your family doing what you would have them do. Father, remind us that we can come to you boldly because of grace, because you have taken the first step to mark us and to redeem us and to invite us in. Let us be overwhelmed by that, in awe of that. But in all of it, let your love shine through, we pray in Jesus' name.